Well, this fall, our goal is to immerse ourselves in and live out the core message of Jesus and really the core message of the Bible, which is the presence and availability of the kingdom of God in the here and now. Now, I will be honest with you, I grew up in church. Uh, while I was growing up, I learned a lot about Jesus. Uh, I learned a lot about how to get saved, uh, a lot about what Christians should and shouldn't do, but I heard almost nothing about the kingdom of God. And I bet I'm not the only one. Even though Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else, the gospel writers alone record Jesus uh, talking about the kingdom over a hundred times. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus talks incessantly about the kingdom. He frames everything that he does in terms of the kingdom. So how could we miss it? This morning I want us to wrestle with three questions. Number one, if we are following Jesus and we somehow missed his core message, how did that happen? Secondly, what is the kingdom of God? And related to it, what is the gospel of the kingdom? And then thirdly, what, what difference does it make? Why does it matter? That's where we're going today. So how could we possibly miss the central message of Jesus? Well, there may be many reasons. I'm just going to talk about two of them. The first has to do with how the American church often presents the gospel. Not if you've heard this before. The good news is that if you confess your sins and accept Jesus, you can be saved and have everlasting life. Yes? I've heard that lots of times. That is not the gospel. That is a formula for getting saved. But it's not the gospel. And it's not the gospel because confessing sins, accepting Jesus... And receiving everlasting life is primarily about you and what you do. Whereas the gospel is all about Jesus and what he does. And look, it's not that the formula is bad, it's biblical. The Apostle Paul wrote, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The problem is that this formula confuses God's work and our response. Jesus began his ministry by saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news is not the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. So one reason we may have missed the point is that we've confused the good news of what God has done with what we need to do in response. Another reason we may have missed the core message of the Bible is because of the way that the biblical story is often framed, at least in the West. Now, not if you've heard this before. The biblical story is a four-act play. It begins with creation. God creates a perfect world. But then humankind rejects God and sin and death enter the world. This is called the fall. But God sent Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sin and from death. 
And one day Jesus will return to destroy evil and death and bring his children to their forever home. Does that sound familiar? Is that biblical? Yes. So what's wrong with it? Well, the problem with this framing is that it edits out most of the Bible. Like all but six chapters of it. Now, those are six important chapters. But the vast majority of the Bible has been completely gutted from this framing of the story. The biblical story is not four bullet points any more than the gospel is a formula for personal salvation. We need a better frame for the story that doesn't edit out 99% of it. So let's try to follow a different thread. God creates a perfect world. There's shalom. There's wholeness and harmony. God dwells with his creation. He walks with his children in the garden in the cool of the day. God is king and he reigns over his creation. He creates human beings to reign under him and with him by filling and cultivating the earth. God says, you can eat anything you want in the garden except the fruit from that tree. Obey me about that tree and you will live. The next thing we know, there's a talking serpent in the garden. We don't really know why he's there. But he says to the woman, you know, you should eat that, that fruit. And she says, God said if we eat that fruit, we'll die. And the serpent says, you will not die. Instead, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You'll be able to decide for yourself what good and evil are. You'll be able to rule and to reign apart from God. You'll be able to build your own kingdom and be in total control of your life. And you'll be so much happier if you do. And they believe the lie. And they eat the fruit. And the man and the woman immediately realize that they're naked. And shame and suspicion and fear enter their hearts. And they, they start to blame each other. And shalom begins to unravel relationships that used to be about service are now all about power, pain, sorrow, sickness, and death enter the scene. Creation groans. But God makes a promise that one day one of their own descendants will crush the serpent. But only after that serpent inflicts a mortal wound. Now going forward, the human beings indeed multiply and fill the earth, but they keep trying to rule and reign apart from God on their own. God doesn't give up though. He pursues his children. He invites them to submit to his leadership and to reign with him once more. He starts with a family, with Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. He makes a promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And you will be a blessing, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a staggering promise, especially given their age. And despite the family's flaws and failures, God is faithful to his promise. Abraham's descendants become numerous and fill the land, but they soon become oppressed by the Egyptians and forced into slave labor. They cry out to God, and God hears them. And he, he, he rescues them, he liberates them from their bondage, he leads them out of Egypt. 
He makes a covenant with them. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. He gives them this tremendous land. He reveals his will to them. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, meaning you will show the nations my glory and my ways so that everyone will have an opportunity to come and know me and worship me. And if you do my will, I will protect you. I will bless you. I will bless others through you. You will flourish in this land I've given you. But if you forsake my ways, if you go your own way, I will remove my hand of protection and you will lose the land. And Israel is totally on board with this plan. Now, Israel's an interesting case in the history of the world, especially in the ancient Near East. They're an outlier. They are a nation in every way, except they have no human king. Why? Because God is their king. And despite their stubbornness and unfaithfulness, God is faithful to them. He's merciful to them. He continues to rescue them when they're in trouble. He provides leaders and judges to administer justice, prophets to remind them of his ways. And then one day, the elders gang up on the prophet Samuel, who's getting old, and they demand a king. And Samuel says, you have a king. God is your king. And they say, no, we want a real king like the other nations have. And God says to Samuel, give them what they want. The people have rejected me as their king. So they get a king named Saul. And they pick Saul because he's tall, dark, and handsome, which, as it turns out, is terrible criteria. Just ask Beth. Saul, of course, is a disaster, but he is succeeded by a young shepherd named David. Now, David is different. He's nothing like Saul. He's humble, he's courageous, and most importantly, he's a man after God's own heart. And he leads Israel with truth and justice. He leads them in worship. He lays the groundwork for the building of the temple. He ushers in a time of peace and prosperity, and God promises David that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. But then toward the end of David's life, David too is overcome by sin and rebellion, and his children become violent and corrupt. And when David dies, his son Solomon assumes the throne, and he's wise, he's wealthy, Israel expands its borders, keeps their enemies at bay, but, but its character begins to rot. Idol worship becomes rampant. The poor are oppressed. And shortly after Solomon dies, his children split the kingdom in two. And the rest of the monarchy is by and large a train wreck, a catastrophic failure. Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. The temple's burnt to the ground. Israel's best and brightest are carried off into exile. The line of kings ends. It's a really depressing story. It's littered with unfulfilled promises and unresolved chords. It's a story without an ending, really. But in the midst of Israel's and the monarchy's failure... In the midst of its exile and captivity, a group of people begin to speak. They're called the prophets. One of them is named Isaiah. 
And God gives Isaiah a vision of the future. A watchman is standing on the tower of Jerusalem. Now, this tower didn't even exist when Isaiah had this vision. And just then, this watchman sees a herald sprinting toward the city, screaming, Good news! Good news! And Isaiah erupts. He says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. God has returned to Zion to reign as king over his people once again. God gives Isaiah another peek into Israel's future. And this time, the lens focuses in over a bassinet. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and uplifting and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God gives Isaiah other windows into Israel's future. A special king will be a man of sorrows, despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. He will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment he receives will bring peace, but by his wounds the nations will be healed. He will be cut off from the land of the living and assigned a grave with the wicked. Yet, says Isaiah, it is the Lord's will that, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. The curtain closes on the Hebrew scriptures with the prophet's words hanging in the air. As the New Testament begins, before we even meet Jesus, each of the four gospel writers go out of their way to place Jesus' story in the context of Israel's unfinished story. Matthew, for instance, shows that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham and from the line of David. Mark quotes Isaiah, a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Luke begins with this long, 
beautiful musical prelude announcing that God is sending his chosen one to confront the corrupt kingdoms of the world, to do justice and to restore shalom. John winks at his readers and says, do you remember when God created the world and dwelt among us? He's doing it again. So when Jesus finally speaks, we've been primed by all four gospel writers to understand exactly who he is and what he's up to. And if there was any doubt, it is shattered by Jesus' first public words. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is that God has become king. The good news is that God has begun to rule on earth as he does in heaven. A whole new world is coming into existence through Jesus. God is bringing heaven down. He's beginning to restore shalom. And God's redemptive healing reign is available to anyone who will repent of their desire to rule and reign apart from God and to believe this happy news. Immediately, Jesus begins to show people what his kingdom looked like. His very first sermon, he quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners Recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a fresh start for everyone. Jesus' cousin John, who had spent years calling Israel to repent and to prepare the way for Jesus, was arrested and imprisoned. And from his dungeon, he began to doubt. And he sent messengers to Jesus asking if he really was heaven's king. And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The hungry are fed. Moral failures and social outcasts are welcomed into God's heart. The humble poor are lifted up, and the proud rich are brought down. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus says that unless you change and become like humble children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. He says, those who live by the world's ways lord their power over other people. But whoever wants to become great in my kingdom must become a servant to all. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, the religious establishment of his day was watching. They were listening very carefully as Jesus not only healed people, but forgave their sins, regardless of their pedigree, 
regardless of their spiritual track record or their moral performance, and they began to view Jesus as a threat to their power and influence, and they plotted against him. And here's the surprising thing. Jesus let them. Jesus did nothing to stop them. In fact, he told his followers repeatedly, this has to happen. I have to be rejected. I have to suffer and die. And Jesus walked knowingly and willingly into their trap. They arrest him. They usher him through a whole series of bogus, illegal trials. They hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. The Romans put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a a royal robe on his back. They fix a sign above him that says, King of the Jews. They're mocking him, of course. But Jesus demonstrates his royal authority when he prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then he dies. And his followers are devastated. How could it end like this? Five, years, five days earlier, Jesus was on top of the world. They were in shock. They were disillusioned. They were terrified. On the third day, some women went to the grave, as was the custom to embalm Jesus' corpse. They never found it. Instead, Jesus found them. He had triumphed over sin and death. He had crushed the head of the serpent who had dealt him the fatal blow. Jesus conquered death with his life and defeated his enemies with his love. Over the next several weeks, he appeared to hundreds of his followers, comforting them and tasking them with announcing the good news that heaven's king had come to save and to reign over and with and through his people. And these disciples spent the rest of their lives inviting others to give their allegiance to the true king who rules by serving and who conquers by laying down his life, even for his enemies. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel Jesus preached, the gospel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John announce is simply this, Jesus is Israel's king. The one God promised to Adam and Eve, and to Abraham, and to David, and the prophets, Jesus came to dwell with and to save and to rule over and through his people, to conquer death, to defeat the serpent, and to restore shalom. And Jesus is not just Israel's king. He is the king of the whole world. That's the good news. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. The kingdom of God is wherever God is sovereignly, graciously, redemptively ruling over and through his people, not just in Israel, but in every nation on earth. When Jesus came, he inaugurated that kingdom. He set it into motion. He brought heaven down. He created little pockets of activity where God's will is happening on earth as it is in heaven. 
And those pockets have been expanding and multiplying ever since. And one day, Jesus is going to return to finish the job. He's going to rid the world of all sorrow and sickness and pain, of all corruption and injustice and violence, of all sin and death. He's going to establish his total and comprehensive reign forever. He's going to make all things new and restore every square inch of creation to shalom. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. All right, why does this matter? What difference does it make? Plenty. If the gospel is not simply a formula for how to get saved, that changes everything. If the gospel is just a formula for how to get saved, then there's no discipleship, no transformation, no fresh start, no abundant life. If the gospel is just a formula, then salvation is pie in the sky when you die by and by. But your life here and now and this world remain unchanged. You're just waiting for the buzzer to sound. You're just waiting for time to run out. But if the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the true king who brings heaven down here and now to regenerate hearts and minds and restore shalom, then everything changes then salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is an invitation to live with King Jesus and be transformed by his gracious and redemptive reign starting now. If that's true, then the cry of our hearts becomes, Lord, reign in me. Rule over my life. Rule over my thoughts and desires. Rule over my priorities and values. Rule over my words and actions, my relationships and commitments, my dreams and aspirations. Bring everything that is within me under your wise and loving authority. Teach me how to seek your kingdom first. If salvation is living under the authority of King Jesus, then everything changes. Jesus gets to define what's good. Jesus gets to define what's great. Jesus gets to define what love looks like and what life is all about. If the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the true king, then everything changes. What else? If the gospel is a formula for how to get saved, then the goal of my faith is to escape this world and get to heaven. But if the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the true king who brings heaven down, then the goal of my faith is not to escape this world, but to help renew it. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the true king who brings heaven down, then the goal of our faith is not to escape this world, but to help renew it. Which means everything in my life, everything in your life, suddenly becomes infused with purpose, with ultimate purpose. Parenting becomes an opportunity to disciple kids into kingdom life. Friendship becomes an opportunity to show people the faithful love of Jesus. Annoying people become an opportunity for us to crucify our pride and impatience. 
enemies become an opportunity to practice radical self-giving love and forgiveness. Poverty becomes an opportunity to exercise generosity. Racism and other forms of injustice become opportunities to confront evil and to speak up for those without a voice. Work becomes an opportunity to love my neighbor and give God glory. Education becomes an opportunity to gain knowledge and skills to better serve others and make much of Jesus. Suffering becomes an opportunity to deepen our reliance upon God and others and to praise God unconditionally. Your neighbor's suffering becomes an opportunity to help carry a burden just like Jesus carries ours. Polarization becomes an opportunity to listen well, to listen incarnationally, to build bridges and find common ground and common cause. A pandemic becomes an opportunity to put our neighbor first and to care for the vulnerable and the lonely. If the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the true king who brings heaven down, then the goal of our faith is not to escape this world but to help renew it. And so now every single part of our lives becomes infused with purpose. When I look out at the culture right now, I see two major narratives that people are living by. The first is, my side is right, the other side is wrong, my side needs to win, the other side needs to lose, or the world will end. And when people exhaust themselves with this narrative, they usually jump to the second narrative, which is basically, life is overwhelming and depressing, what do I need to do to stay sane? How can I self-medicate and just survive this? And friends, we get to live out a better story. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, help us not to miss this amazing news. To stand with Isaiah on the watchtower. See that herald sprinting toward us announcing good news, and to erupt with joy and relief and wonder. This amazing reality that Jesus brings into being and invites us to become part of. Capture our imaginations and our affections so that we seek your kingdom first with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.